Now, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, where we're going to begin this morning as we continue our series, Sent, walking through this book of Acts. And as you turn there, I want to share with you some very, very great next-gen news. Uh, this Thursday, uh, our plan uh, for building was before the San Joaquin County Planning Commission, and it was passed through uh, without any issues. And so... Amen. We are moving ahead now on our financing in just a little over a week, and that means our groundbreaking on December 3rd is a go. And so we're really excited about that. Uh, just one more hurdle along the way. I also want to remind you, as we've been sharing this last couple of weeks, that uh, because we're going to be closing on our financing at the end of this month, uh, if you are able to accelerate your next-gen giving in any way, it will be just so helpful Uh, The more money we're able to bring to the financing, obviously, the less money we have to to borrow. And so if you're able in any way to do that, we would be so very grateful for that. Well, we are are talking today about getting real. Uh, We're talking about living lives of authenticity before God and before other people. And we want to connect that to how crucial this kind of uh, authenticity is to our mission as a sent people. Now, there was this guy who was desperate for a job, and he learns that a nearby zoo is hiring, and he so goes in to interview, but when he gets there, the zoo director says to him, well, we've only got one job opening, and it's sort of a strange one. Our gorilla died recently, and we haven't had any money to replace him, and so the only job we have is you would have to wear a gorilla suit and impersonate an ape. Now, this feels really awkward, but he is desperate, and so he says, okay, After a few days, though, he finds that he starts getting into it. He's really enjoying the job. And pretty soon, he's one of the zoo's prime attractions. (laughs) One morning, he is swinging from one vine to another a little too enthusiastically. And he swings himself right over the wall into the adjoining cage where an enormous African lion lived. Well, he lands on the ground, and the lion is on him, and he feels the lion's hot breath on his face, and in terror, he begins to scream, help, help, only to hear the lion whisper to him, shut up, you idiot, or we'll both be out of a job. (laughs) Turns out he wasn't alone. Turns out he was a poser living in a world of posers, Everyone in the zoo was faking it. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, but faking it seems to be everywhere right now. We are living in a cultural moment where the hypocrisy of so many famous people, politicians, athletes, celebrities, seems like it just keeps getting exposed on a daily basis. But the truth is, if we will get honest with ourselves, we've all been there. We've all pretended to know things we didn't know. We've all claimed to have done things we haven't done. We've all told people that we bravely stood up for something when the truth is we didn't say a word. We've probably all pretended to be working really, really hard while we're actually wasting time on social media. We pretend to be smarter and happier and kinder and stronger and humbler people than we really are. We're all posers. Now, just to kind of gauge how widespread this is among us, I want to mention a couple of ways that this often happens where people commonly fake it. And 
as being authentic, part of being real today, I'm going to invite you, I'm going to encourage you to join in and just admit it, all right, by raising your hands. This is going to be one of those raise your hands deal. If you've ever done one of these things I've mentioned, will you just be honest with the rest of us who are here today? Here's the first way. Have you ever been watching TV and you hear the garage door go up? Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your spouse. And you turn the TV off quickly and you get busy doing something so you look like you've really been productive (laughs) while they were gone. Has anyone ever done that? Would you raise your hand? I've done that. Yes, I admit that one. How about this one? Someone mentions something you feel like you should know, a person or a book title, and even though you don't know, you pretend that you do. Anybody ever done that one? I've done this. I've done this. I see a number of honest people and some other kind of people. Here's a third one, okay? And this will really relate to those of us who are living in Tracy and all the construction is going on right now. You're driving down the road and the person in the other lane is trying to catch your eye so that you will let them get over in front of you and you have no intention of letting them in. So you pretend you just don't see them. And instead of looking like a jerk, you're just an unobservant nice guy. Anybody ever done that one? Now, I have stooped pretty low in my day, but I have never done that. (laughs) I just don't know who you are anymore. Well, in our passage today, uh, Acts 4.32 through Acts 5.11, we are going to read some vignettes from the life of the early church. And just like today, you're going to see some Christians who were real and some Christians who were not. And just like today, we are also going to see that God believes that integrity matters, and God believes that hypocrisy is deadly both to our own souls and to our witness to the watching world. Follow along as we read our text. Luke writes, beginning in verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and... After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me. 
Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you all out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You know, you read something like that and you kind of just go, wow, or whoa. I was actually also thinking with our closing on our next-gen financing coming up in one week that it might be a great time to right now take an offering, an extra offering. Um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, what we see here really is a, a prime example of how Satan works against God's people. And we're in a section where Satan is attacking this section in the book of Acts. We've just come out of a, uh, of a study of how Satan brings persecution on the church, pressure from outside, attack from outside. But maybe more often these days, in our experience, where he attacks is from the inside, like what we're going to see today. He attacks by trying to undermine our integrity. Uh, you're going to see today, as we read and work through this passage, a a moment of failure and a moment of tragedy in the early church. And I believe that God is going to use it to warn some of us directly through this. Here's the central idea. I want you to write this down and think about it. Uh, we are truly, uh, we can truly live as a sent people when we get real with God and with each other. This text, this story tells us how crucial honesty and integrity are for us to actually fulfill the mission that God has given us to do, that God has sent us out on. Now, let me show you several things that happen when God's people get real. The first thing is we devote ourselves to unity. Now, by this time in the story of the early church, there are thousands of Christ followers. There are thousands and thousands of very, very different people, just like us, people coming from different places in life, different stations in life, different backgrounds in life. But Luke makes this remarkable statement in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. And when you read that, you have to ask, well, how did that happen? How did all of that diversity and difference come together in unity? Did these people just get along no matter what happened? Were they, were they people who just were agreeable all the time? And the answer is no, no, we, we don't think so especially as we read through the rest of the New Testament and we see the reality that the early Christians, just like us, they argued sometimes and they gossiped sometimes and they fought sometimes. I think what we're seeing here in their unity is a result of some choices that they were making, some choices that we actually see as we read through the rest of the New Testament, and they're choices we need to make. I want to mention just a couple of choices that are involved in being devoted to unity. The first one is this. When we're devoted to unity, we refuse to tolerate unresolved conflict. Conflict is going to happen. It always does in this broken world. And the New Testament, you read about it, it's honest about conflict in the church, the reality of it. But people who are devoted to unity refuse to let it just go on unresolved. Second thing, when we devote ourselves to unity, we also do not allow bitterness and resentment to fester. 
We see those things as just unacceptable as God's people. We do not put up with those things in our hearts and our lives. And those two things may sound kind of similar, but here's the difference. The first is about what happens between us. And the second is about what happens inside us. See, we do not, we do not put up with these things in our lives. We choose to devote ourselves to unity. There's also a clue about the source of this unity, where this devotion to unity comes from in this verse. It's in this word, believers. Believers are are people whose lives have been changed by an encounter with Jesus and his gospel. This means that our sins have been forgiven by grace, and out of that, we learn that we are not better than anyone else. We, We learn that life is not about possessions and about prestige. Life is about people. It's about the people that God sent his only son to die for. And we learn out of believing that believing in Jesus puts us in a family, and that means that we are all brothers and sisters. And so we don't attack each other. And so we don't listen to other people attacking each other. We may hurt each other. That happens in families. We may get mad at each other. That happens in families. But we're family, and we're in this together. And so we work to forgive, and we work to love. We are devoted to unity. We want to be one heart and mind. Do you know this kind of radical oneness was something that Jesus himself passionately prayed for right before he was crucified? He prayed a prayer for all the people who would ever follow him, and that includes us. We find it in John 17, verses 20 to 23 says this. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, in that prayer, Jesus was saying to his Father, Father, oneness is who we are. And since you have made them in our image and since I'm going to be in them, it ought to be who they are too. This just tells us unity is a very big deal to God. Think about the reason why. God purchased his church's unity at a terribly high price. You see, Jesus died to make us right with God, to make us one with each other. The Bible tells us that it is a bloodstained cross that tears down the wall of hostility between people so that we can come together as one. That's the ultimate reason why God is so jealous for the unity of Christ's body. But on top of that, when we are coming together as one, all kinds of different people becoming unified, it is a powerful thing. And the watching world sees that miracle happen and they might just think maybe there is something to this Jesus thing. See, we are devoted to unity out of our experience of grace, but it's part of our mission as well. We need to be people that show unity so that other people can be drawn to Jesus Christ. So I just want to ask you this morning just to look at your own heart and life. Are you radically devoted to unity in the body of Christ? Are you jealously protective of this precious commodity called unity in the church? 
See, when we come together and we live as one, one heart, one mind, there is nothing like it. But there is also nothing like it either when we don't. So God's people need to be real in our unity. But there's a second thing that we see in this story. When we get real, secondly, we express our unity in generosity. Now, Luke has already made this point clear once before. Back in chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, he wrote, Now all the believers were together and had everything in common, so they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Now, with that in mind, look again at verse 32 and imagine what it was really like to really live this way. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed to have that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. The point I want you to see here is that their devotion to unity wasn't just about nice, warm feelings for one another. Their oneness subjectively expressed itself objectively. It got real through generosity. I also want to clear something up because sometimes people look at this passage and and say that, you know, well, real Christianity, if we're really living this way, it must be like a kind of early version of communism. And in fact, that just a couple weeks ago, it was in the New York Times, I read an article called, Are Christians Supposed to Be Communists? Where a scholar raised this question. It's been raised many times. And I just want to briefly address this and, and say, I don't think that this accurately describes what is happening here. I think it misreads it. Modern communism is always something that's enforced and it's imposed by totalitarian government. We never see anything like that in the New Testament. In fact, just like here, all New Testament sharing is completely voluntary. On top of that, we never find any commands that tell all Christians for all time living everywhere that they're supposed to live with all their possessions in common. What is really going on here? is that these early believers, their minds were being renewed and they were looking at their stuff. And when they looked at their stuff, they weren't thinking about it in terms of it being my stuff. The thoughts that ran through their minds were not like, how can I get more stuff and how can I hang on to my stuff? They started thinking about other people who were in need and about how their stuff could be used to help those people. Look again at verses 34 and 35. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. What's going on here? Well, what's happening is this. Their lives have been changed by the gospel. And when your life has been changed, something always happens. It always results in real objective change that that matters out here in the real world. Maybe you can put it like this. The gospel loosens our grip on stuff and tightens our grip on people. This is always what happens when the gospel gets hold of you. And the reason is this. That's what Jesus did for you. In In the book of Philippians, Paul writes these very familiar words in the second chapter. He talks about how though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus gave up his privilege. He gave up his glory. He made himself a servant so that he could one day climb up on a cross and die for our sins. Paul says, though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. 
Jesus' hold on his position of glory, his stuff, if you will, loosened, and his hold on us tightened. Jesus gladly let his stuff go so that he could rescue us, and that's what these people did because that's what Jesus had done for them. And by extension today, if that's what Jesus has done for you, then that's what you will do for other people. You will become a generous person. In fact, generosity is so connected to the reality of the gospel in the New Testament that I can even say something as strong as this. And write this down and think about it. An ungenerous heart displays an unfamiliarity with the gospel. In other words, if you are not generous with what God has given you, with your possessions, with your money, with your time, then the Bible says that it's right to wonder if you have truly encountered the life-changing gospel of God's grace. And if you're right now thinking, I don't know about that, you know, pastors are always connecting money and stuff like that, that's not really the case, I don't think, then you're the person who really needs to hear this. If you fight against this, you have to ask yourself, why? Because it is everywhere in the Bible. Now, right here at the end of Acts 4, we have an example. Luke gives us a picture of a heart that's been made generous by an encounter with the gospel. Look again at verses 36 and 37. He says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now we meet Barnabas, and he's never going to be called Joseph again. His nickname is Barnabas. His real name is Joseph. But he goes by Barnabas, and he actually, I think, has to be one of the coolest characters in the whole book of Acts. Um, He's got this nickname because of who he was and how he lived. And, and, And Luke tells us here what the name means, son of encouragement. But as we read his story kind of unfolding through the book of Acts, we understand why. Now, let me just tell you about him. Barnabas makes six appearances in the book of Acts, and and you get his character from these appearances. The first one is right here, where he's like the lead giver in the church. He's the one giving away all his stuff so that the work of God's church can go forward so that people can be taken care of. The second time we run into him is in Acts 9, And it comes out of this story where Paul is is converted. He's Saul, and he's becoming Paul. And you may remember the story that when he was Saul, he was persecuting Christians, but now he's one of them, and and he's trying to become part of the, the family of faith. But you know what? The early Christians are looking at him, and they're saying, uh uh, I don't want him in my small group. Because they're like wondering if, if, you know, this persecutor of Christians, he's had Christians put to death. You know, we're going to be in a circle and we're going to be praying and he may get his knife out and do something and we don't want him in our group. But you know what happens? Barnabas stands up, steps forward, and Barnabas says, I think God is working in this life. I think we should give him a chance. That's Barnabas. Third time we run into Barnabas is in Acts chapter 11. And the church in Antioch is beginning to diversify. They're starting to reach out to the Gentiles. Guess who takes the lead? Guess who befriends and pastors all the Gentile converts? It's Barnabas. A little bit later in Acts 11 is the fourth time we meet him, and we see that Barnabas gets put in charge of taking a relief offering 
to Jerusalem where there's been a famine. It's kind of like their disaster relief project. He takes the lead here. And then a fifth time Barnabas shows up in Acts 13 is when he is the number one volunteer to go with Paul on the very first missionary journey. You read through Acts 13 and you see that this guy named John Mark joins the missionary team and and they go out together. But sometime later on, John Mark abandons them. John Mark goes home. Barnabas shows up the final time when a few months later, John Mark repents of what he had done and he wants to try again. But it's interesting, the apostle Paul is done with him. Paul says, nope, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. It's kind of an interesting thing. The apostle Paul, he liked to talk a lot about grace, but apparently he wasn't always so gracious himself. And I think Barnabas went to him and Barnabas said, we need to give him a second chance, Paul. Hey, Paul, remember Jesus gave you a second chance. I gave you a second chance. Maybe you should give John Mark a second chance. But Paul is adamant. He refuses. They go their separate ways. There's now two missionary teams. Barnabas takes John Mark, goes one way. Paul takes Silas, goes another way. And by the way, keep reading through the New Testament. Down the line a few years, Paul comes around, and in one of his later letters, he admits that Barnabas was right. Now, here's how I would summarize Barnabas, who, by the way, is the only person in the book of Acts who is called a good man. Barnabas is this guy who is always laying his money down and picking people up. His hold on his stuff was loose. His hold on other people was tight. And it's an interesting thing to consider that Barnabas is like the very first guy we get to know in Acts who's not an apostle. He is presented to us as an ordinary Christ follower, just like you and just like me. He is a picture of the gospel-transformed man. Barnabas lives the life that we are all supposed to live. His life is what a normal Christian life is supposed to look like. And one of the things that I think just stands out, especially in these last two verses in chapter 4, is this. Real generosity always involves sacrifice. I think we need to be reminded about that because sometimes we think generosity involves us giving away something we really don't need or we really don't want. But real generosity always involves sacrifice And it's always rooted in the sacrifice we're willing to make because of the sacrifice Jesus made for us. So those are the first two things we see about getting real. And now we kind of move to the darker side of this story. Uh, The third way we, we get real, we get authentic, is when we fear God more than anyone. We move into chapter five, and in Acts five, we see this next vignette. And It's about this couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they've seen Barnabas sell his land, and they decide that they could get some acclaim by selling their land, and so they sell their land, but they don't want to give up all the money. And they decide that they'll give just enough to convince everyone that this was the fair price that they got for their land. They decide to keep the rest. They decide to live a lie. And it's very important that you understand this to see what is going on in this story. This decision that they make to deceive their brothers and their sisters is not some kind of casual spur-of-the-moment thing. It's not simply the slippage and authenticity that every one of us is guilty of from time to time. It's not the kind of thing that just leaks out of all of us occasionally. 
If you look at verses one and two and also verse nine, we are told that this is a deliberate, premeditated act. They agreed together ahead of time. So this is telling us for them to fake and pose, it's not just an occasional temptation. It was a way of life that they chose and they embraced. Verses three through six makes it clear how serious their choice is. Let me read those words again. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Now, notice what Peter is asking Ananias. He says, how could you do this, Ananias? Did you really think that you could fool God? You see, Ananias and Sapphira thought they were just trying to impress some other people, but, but, but Peter says the real problem is they cared more about what other people thought than about what God thought. Peter says that when you stop being real and when you lie to others in the body, it is not just a lie to them. It is a lie to God. And this is a very important point for us to understand about how God looks at the church. We live in a cultural moment where uh, our, our, our society looks at the church mostly with disdain. Some of it's deserved, some of it isn't. But I think sometimes because our culture at large looks at the church with disdain, even those of us inside the church can diminish and even denigrate the church. We, we can have some disdain for it as well. But the Bible doesn't say that at all. In fact, we are told here the church and the Holy Spirit are so closely related that Peter says Ananias' lie to the church was a lie to the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the church is the place on earth where the Holy Spirit takes up residency. And the relationship between the church and the Holy Spirit is so close, so intimate. It is hard to overstate it. To lie to and, and to wound the church is to lie to and to wound the Holy Spirit of God. Now, this story is about more than just greed or deception. It is about the choice that we can make to use the church instead of serving it. Ananias and Sapphira, they decide that instead of just being humble members of the church family who are serving others, they're going to use the church to serve their own desires for self-exaltation. And what we see here is that God will not allow that. He will not allow his dream for the human race to be destroyed. He cannot. God will protect his bride. I want you to listen to a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes these words that are intended to be a wonderful comfort to the church, and they actually are, but they are also like the words we read in Acts 5. They're somewhat frightening words. Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? The church is God's dwelling place on earth, Paul says, 
And then his next words, those words that we don't read that often, those words that we make pass over because they tend to induce some fear. Paul says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Paul is saying that God's love for the church is fierce and holy and jealous and wonderful because God loves people. And people who have said yes to God make up the church. And God longs for these people to live in community. Therefore, if you touch the church, you touch God, and God will protect the church. And that means sometimes God will protect the church against me, maybe against you. You see, if I use the church to showcase my talents or further my ambition, I violate the church. If I seek to gain control over others to show how dominant and powerful I can be, I violate the church. If I join a little clique that gossips about and excludes other people who are outside my clique, I misuse the church. If I subtly seek to let others know how spiritual I am, I misuse the church. Now, for most of us, this problem probably hasn't reached anywhere near the depth it has for Ananias and Sapphira. I I doubt that the vast majority of us that have made a decision to, to live as imposters and deceive the church, but we need to be honest, the temptation to misuse the church is still there. And the way we resist that temptation is we fear God more than other people. We care more what God thinks than what other people think. This kind of ties together with the last thing I want you to see. We get real when we stop playing the image management game. You see, when we are not real and authentic, what is happening is we are trying to manage the way other people see us. We are trying to make other people think more highly of us, even if that means we have to lie. And it's a very ironic thing. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but this problem is particularly acute among people who are serious about following God. You see, when people try to grow spiritually, there is always a danger that this quest for spiritual growth will get perverted and will will get twisted and will lead to something that is actually far worse than people were led into when they weren't even pursuing it. There's a story about a young Stanford pre-med student. He was a competitive guy, driven guy. I mean, he's a Stanford guy. And his parents were, were trying to get him to relax. And so they sent him on this vacation between his sophomore and junior years. They sent him out east. And while he was out east, he meets this guru. And this guru says, you know what? Don't you see how you're poisoning your soul with this competitive success oriented way of life. He says, your idea of happiness is staying up all night studying for an exam so you can get a better grade than your best friend. Your idea of a good marriage is not to find the woman who will make you whole, but to win the girl everybody else wants. He says, that's not how people should live. And so give it up. Come and join us. Come be part of this place where we all just share and we all just love each other. This young man has completed four years at a competitive high school to get into Stanford, plus two years of pre-med courses at Stanford. But he decides to do it. He calls his parents and he tells them he's dropping out. He's going to live at this religious commune. Six months later, his parents get a letter 
It says, Dear Mom and Dad, I know you weren't happy with the decision I made last summer, but I want to tell you how happy it's made me. For the first time in my life, I'm at peace. There's no competing, no trying to get ahead. Here we are all equal, and here we all share. And in fact, this way of life is so much in harmony with my soul's inner essence that in only six months, I have become the number two disciple in the whole commune. And I think I can be number one by June. And you don't know whether to laugh or cry because it happens, doesn't it? It even happens in churches. You see, the the kingdom of this world that we live in, it's about image management, and that means competition. And there's just this constant struggle to be smarter and prettier and richer and stronger than someone else. And out of that, therefore, to feel like we matter. And Jesus comes to the human race and he says, there's a better way to live. He says, you can die to yourself. He says, you can die to this foolish, destructive struggle to prove your worth. And then this new community of Jesus is is made up of people who decide they will die to themselves. But then one day, one of them gets this sneaky idea Maybe I can die to myself better than anyone else. Maybe I can become, you know, the deadest person in the whole community. And once again, life becomes a contest. Only now, instead of seeing who's the smartest or the strongest, the game is who's the most spiritual. Who reads the Bible the most? Who prays the most? Who gives the most money? Who disapproves of the world the hardest? Who holds the Guinness Book of World Records for most consecutive days without missing your devotions? I don't know if you know this, but even pastors can play at that game. Pastors can get jealous of other pastors. Pastors can find themselves thinking, you know what? He is convincing that other pastor. He is convincing more people to die for themselves than I am. And that makes me mad. And that's not fair. I would die to convince more people to die than themselves than him. (laughs) It's kind of crazy when you stop and think about it, isn't it? Why did Ananias and Sapphira do what they did? The reality is their lies were symptomatic of a much deeper problem. They love money, and they love the praise of people. And so they tell a lie to keep as much of their money as they can and to gather as much praise as they can. And do you see the contrast with Barnabas? is the opposite. Barnabas was filled with the Spirit, and he gave his stuff away to bless people. They were filled with the love of money and the love of people's praise, and so they lied about their generosity to gather praise from people and to keep as much of their money as they should. Now, this is a very important thing to realize. Sins like lying always come from somewhere. There's something going on beneath the sin. And in this case, their lies were going all the way down to the deepest parts of their heart what they really loved. For yourself, think about this. Sins like like jealousy, like lying, like cheating, like not being generous, and that is a sin. All these things, they are, if you can think of it this way, they are like smoke from a fire that leads back to the altars where you are worshiping. 
You see, these sins that are on the surface that you can see, they're not the ultimate problem. In other words, the problem is not the smoke. The problem is the fire that created that smoke. And so the question here is, where are you worshiping? What really matters most to you? When we live lives that aren't real, aren't authentic, at the bottom, it is always because we're not fearing God and we're not loving God above all other things. And so what we need to get real is not just to quit lying. We need to be filled with the love of God and with the fear of God. We, we don't just need to, to fan away the smoke, you know, turn on the exhaust fan. We need to put out the fire. It all comes back to not being real. And it's something we've all done. And because of this, all of us, periodically at least, need some moments in life where we can own up to what we've done where we can throw ourselves on the Father's grace. And there comes in this story a moment of truth. And sometimes these moments of truth may come for us, and maybe it's going to come for you today. Sapphira's moment is in verses 7 through 11. I want you to read those words again. Luke writes, After uh, about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, I want you to try to put yourself in that room at that moment. And Sapphira enters that room, and she is probably expecting to see a lot of rejoicing because, because she and her husband have just given this wonderful gift to the church, and everybody's going to be so excited. But when she walks in, instead of rejoicing, she gets this strange silence. And then Peter asks her, tell me, is this the price you got for the land? Is this the truth? And I think in that moment, everyone in that room was holding their breath to see what was happening, was gonna happen. I think everyone in that room was thinking, please tell the truth. Please tell the truth. And if she did, this story would have such a different ending. There would have been life instead of death, grace instead of fear. But she will not. She refuses to own the truth of who she is and what she's done. She chooses death. Now, I want to invite you with that in mind to have a moment of truth with God. I want to invite you to take some time to look at your own life and be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. What is it that fills your heart? What do you love the most? Will you get real with God? It is ultimately a choice between life and death. You know, it may not happen so suddenly, it may not happen this dramatically, but the choices we make like this are ultimately about life and death for us, and that's why it is always so urgent. Will you today choose life? Will you today own the state of your heart and, and just give up trying to fake it if that's what you've been doing? Will you before God, and if you need to, before others come clean? There are some of us here today who desperately 
need to come clean before God. There are some of us here today who then need to go and get real somewhere with someone. This story could have been so different if Ananias and Sapphira had just been real and truthful and honest. They could have come before Peter and they could have confessed. They could have said, here's the truth about us. They could have been authentic and real. And your story, your story can be different too. If you will hear what God is saying, if you will respond to the Spirit's leadership here. I want you to think about what this story means in our own lives. I also want you to think about what it means as we consider the mission that God has given all of us together, this mission of being sent out into the world. If we get real, if we are people of authenticity, think of what God can do through us. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? As we pray, your eyes are closed and you're listening to God. Let me remind you again that uh, getting real is always rooted in getting the gospel and getting the truth that God loves us unconditionally in Jesus in spite of our sins and we're accepted and so because of that acceptance, we don't need to fake it. We can just rest in his grace. And that just means wherever we find ourselves striving, what we need to do is return to the cross, return to the gospel, return to grace. And if that's what you need to do today, I just urge you to take that step. Father, we ask you to confront us again with your grace, that you remind us, Father, that despite our sin, you have loved us in your son, Jesus. And out of that forgiveness by his grace, we can now have the freedom to be honest with ourselves and honest with you to get real. So Lord, where confession needs to be made, would you speak to our hearts today that we would get real with you and where, where things need to be changed between us, would you show us where that needs to happen? Lord, I also pray if there is anyone here who has never actually encountered you that you would open their heart today, that they would see the grace that you offered them through Jesus, your son, his death on the cross for their sins. I pray, Lord, they would see that and they would turn from their sins in repentance and they would turn to you in faith. Lord, we thank you for your word, for how it speaks to our lives. And we ask all these things now in the name of your son, Jesus the Christ. God's people say.